0: Having am uh, uh, Much, but certainly not all, of what we'll cover today has been addressed elsewhere. As always, I have cut, pace and edited the quotes for the sermon. Uh, please do not uh, chew gum in church. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The great Le- saint, St. Saint, uh, saint, saint Leonard of Port Maurice, he's a patron saint of parish missions, tells a terrifying story. Quote, "A certain man of rank, who lived in the proximate occasion of sin with a depraved female, had found, to his great misfortune, a singularly unconcerned confessor, who was always ready to give him absolution. From time to time, this gentleman's wife, a lady of great piety, would prick the conscience of her husband in order to lead him to suspect the validity of all those absolutions thus given without the proximate occasion being removed. He only turned her efforts into ridicule. Do you want to become a theologian? Take care of your own soul. Leave me to mind mine. If my confessor was not justified and absolved me, he would not do it. He continued to live and to confess as before, and at death his confession was in keeping with those he'd been accustomed to make during life. One day his widow was praying in her chapel, when all of a sudden she saw before her a monster in human form surrounded with flames seated on the shoulders of another man. The good lady would have fled when the monster cried out to her, Stop! Know that I am the soul of your husband, condemned to hell, and that he who bears me is my confessor. We are both damned. I for making unworthy confessions and he for unworthily absolving me. He then disappeared, Close quote. Now how could that be? Why exactly would a man who went to confession regularly, why would he be damned, and his confessor along with him? Those are important questions. In order to answer them today, we're going to take a closer look at the sacrament of penance. But before we do that, let's remind ourselves of what we're doing over these next few weeks. As we noted last week, we're having a Henry VIII moment right now in the Catholic Church, and it's an absolutely epic disaster. And as we also noted last week, in order to really appreciate the situation, and each one of us needs to understand it in order to make sense of what is going on right now between the Pope and the four Cardinals, Cardinal Burke and his companions, in order to really appreciate what's going on right now and why it matters, why it really matters, we need to get some perspective. And so as we also noted last week, we need to start by reviewing some of the fundamental points of the unchanging and unchangeable Catholic faith. And after we've done that, then we'll tie it all together. So last week, we reviewed some of the basic teachings concerning marriage. Today we're going to take a closer look at some of the basic teachings regarding the sacrament of penance. So let's get started. In order to make sure we have a clear understanding of what we'll be talking about, we'll quickly review mortal and venial sin and the three things required for a sacrament, which are the minister, the matter of the sacrament, and the form of the sacrament. Mortal sin. What is mortal sin? Everyone should burn this into his mind. Mortal sin is the problem. It's the one problem that can land us in the fires of hell. The Catechism tells us that mortal sin is a grievous offense against the law of God. A single mortal sin, one mortal sin, deprives the soul of sanctifying grace, which is a supernatural life for the soul. It also makes the soul an enemy of God, takes away all the merit of its good actions, deprives it of the right to everlasting happiness in heaven, and makes it deserving of everlasting punishment in hell. There are three things necessary to make a sin mortal. First, the thought, desire, word, action, or omission must be seriously wrong or considered seriously wrong at the time. Second, the sinner must be mindful of the serious wrong. And third, the sinner must fully consent to it. Again, the three things necessary to make a sin mortal are serious matter, sufficient reflection, full consent of the will. Those are the three things necessary to make a a, a sin mortal. Serious matter, sufficient reflection, full consent of the will. Okay, so what does the man do, practically speaking, who commits a mortal sin? He turns his back completely on God, as it were, and he chooses instead to turn towards some creature In in so many words, the sinner says to God, get away from me. I will not obey you. I will not serve you. I will not acknowledge you as my Lord. I will not have you for my God. This sinful pleasure, that worldly gratification, that advantage, that gratification of my revenge, that will be my God. Okay, so that's mortal sin. Venial sin. We all learn in our catechism that venial sin is a less serious offense against the law of God, which does not deprive the soul of sanctifying grace, and which can be pardoned even without sacramental confession. So that is venial sin. Now let's quickly review the three things required for a sacrament. And that's the minister, the matter of the sacrament, and the form of a sacrament. Okay. The minister of the sacrament is the person with the power to confect the sacrament in the name of Jesus Christ and by His authority. The minister must have the intention of doing what the church intends. Briefly, what are the matter and form of a sacrament? The matter is the material used for the sacrament, the sensible part of the sacrament. For example, water for baptism, wheat bread and grape wine for the most blessed sacrament of the altar. The form, then, are the words that the minister must pronounce in order to confect the sacrament. The words the minister must pronounce in order to validly administer the sacrament. For example, I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as He's pouring water. Okay, so here's the point. Suppose a priest were saying Mass, and at the offertory when he lifts off the pall, he sees, instead of a wheat host lying there, he sees a vanilla wafer lying on the paten. Obviously, that's not proper matter, is it? Absolutely not. Now, this is important. What would happen to that vanilla wafer if the priest were so wicked as to pronounce the words of institution, the form? In other words, if the priest were to say over that vanilla wafer the proper form of the sacrament, which if he were to say, this is my body, over that vanilla wafer. What would happen to that vanilla wafer? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. It's not proper matter. So even if, heaven forbid, the priest were to say those words, absolutely nothing would happen to the vanilla wafer. Nothing could happen to it, because it isn't proper matter. It isn't wheat. But if, heaven forbid, the priest actually did try to consecrate that vanilla wafer, nothing would happen to that vanilla wafer, that's for sure. But something would certainly happen to him. Something terrible would happen to him. Why? Because he would have just deliberately committed a horrific mortal sin. And what exact kind of mortal sin would this be? It would be the terrible sin of sacrilege. Sacrilege is the mistreatment of sacred persons, places, or things. It's a terrible mortal sin. All that by way of background. Now let's turn to the problem at hand. Remember, we're trying to get a clear understanding of exactly why the man who'd been going confession regularly was damned along with his confessor. So we'll break the answer into two parts. First, we'll make sure we'll all understand why the man was damned. And then we'll make sure we all understand why the priest was damned. Okay, so why was that man damned? We'll start answering that question by first reviewing the matter and form of the sacrament of penance. And we'll use the teaching of the Council of Trent. I quote from the Council of Trent. The form of the sacrament of penance are those words of the minister, I absolve thee, etc., to which indeed laudably add certain prayers according to the custom of Holy Church, which, however, do not by any means belong to the essence of the form, nor are they necessary for the administration of the sacrament. The acts of the penitent himself, namely contrition, confession, and satisfaction, constitute the matter of this sacrament, which acts Inasmuch as they are by God's institution required in the penitent, the integrity of the sacrament and for the full and complete remission of sins are for this reason called the parts of penance. Close quote the Council of Trent. Okay, so the form of the sacrament of penance which is applied by the priest of the penitent is, I absolve you. Ego te absolvo. There's a lot of other stuff we say, but that's the form. And make sure you listen for that when you're going to confession. But, you know, there's plenty of priests. We have to go to confession just like everybody else. And sometimes you say, hey, Father, let's do that over again, okay? You have to say, I absolve you. Not your sins are forgiven. Good, good. But you, you have to forgive them first. Listen. Ego te absolvo is what it is in Latin. I absolve you. It can be in any language, but it means I absolve you. That's what it is, not your sins are forgiven. That's at the end, that's true, okay? All right, I absolve you. So the form of the sacrament of penance, which is applied by the priest of penitent, is I absolve you, ego te absolvo. And the matter of the sacrament of penance, that's brought by the penitent to the confessional, has three parts, contrition, confession, Satisfaction. Again, the form is I absolve you, ego te absolve, and there are three parts to the matter Con- contrition, confession, satisfaction. We'll quickly review confession and satisfaction and we'll look at contrition uh, after those two. Okay? Confession, the Council of Trent. Quote, the complete confession of sins was also instituted by the Lord and is by divine law necessary for all who have fallen after baptism." Close quote the Council of Trent. Now the Catechism explains this, I quote, The chief qualities of a good confession are three. It must be humble, sincere, and entire. Our confession is humble when we accuse ourselves of our sins with a conviction of guilt for having offended God. Our confession is sincere when we tell our sins, not those of others, honestly and frankly, just as they are, without excusing or exaggerating them, as if we were telling them to God Himself, being very careful not to mention by name anyone in confession. Our confession is entire when we confess at least all our mortal sins, telling their kind, the number of times we have committed each sin, and any circumstances, changing their nature." Close quotes. Now confession has always been one of the main reasons people convert. All the self-help books in the world, all the psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors in the world, all the Protestant preachers in the world can't wash away the guilt of even one mortal sin. Satisfaction. Satisfaction is just another word for the penance given by the priest. The Catechism explains Quote, the priest gives us a penance after confession that we may make some atonement to God for our sins, receive help to avoid them in the future, and make some satisfaction for the temporal punishment due to them. Close quote. Okay, now let's take a close look at the most important of the three parts of matter, which is contrition. Contrition, the Council of Trent, I quote. Contrition which holds the first place among the aforesaid acts of the penitent, is a sorrow of mind and a detestation for sin, with a purpose of not sinning in the future. The Holy Council declares, therefore, that this contrition implies not only an abstention from sin and the resolution and beginning of a new life, but also a hatred of the old, according to the statement from Ezekiel 18.31, cast away from you all your transgressions by which you have transgressed. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Close quote, the Council of Trent. So, what does that mean? Contrition is a sorrow, it says, contrition is sorrow of mind and detestation for sin committed with a purpose of not sinning in the future. Out of the three things brought by the penitent into confession, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, out of those three things, contrition holds the first place. The patron saint of confessors and moral theologians, the great doctor of moral theology, St. Alphonsus de' has some very enlightening comments in this regard. He's going to explain what this means. St. Alphonsus, quote, sorrow for sin is so necessary for obtaining forgiveness that without it even God himself cannot pardon sin. A person who dies without making an examination of conscience or a confession of his sins may be saved by making a sincere act of perfect contrition. And that is so important that I'm explaining to explain it in detail in a separate sermon at a later date. It's really important to understand this, everybody to understand that. But anyway, a person who dies without making an examination of conscience or confession of his sins may be saved by making an act of sincere, perfect contrition when he has not time to confess his sins nor a priest to whom he can confess them. But without sorrow, it is impossible for the sinner to be saved. And here's the mistake of those people, when preparing for confession, endeavor only to call to mind their sins, but make no effort to arrive at true sorrow for them. For this, we must earnestly ask God's help. And before we go on the confessional, let us say a Hail Mary, and honor the sorrows of the Blessed Virgin, that she may see that we reach true sorrow for our sins. Close quote. The doctor of moral theology of the Universal Church, St. Alphonsus. Now St. Alphonsus describes the necessary qualities of sorrow. I quote. To obtain the forgiveness of our sins in the sacrament of penance, our sorrow for them must not be from the lips, but from the heart. The soul must conceive a true sorrow, a true displeasure or regret, and true heartfelt repentance for the sins that have been committed. Must hate, And abhor them, close quote. Now before we go any farther, we need to understand that this hatred and sorrow is not a question of feelings. It's a question of the will. Presumably a man that uses cocaine likes it. Most people like the sins they are involved in. So presumably the man that's using cocaine likes it. And so he feels like using it. But if he has sincere sorrow for his previous sins of using cocaine, then even if his body craved it and felt like he wanted it, he would hate and abhor the sin, no matter what his feelings were doing to him. It's the will that counts and not the feelings. The sorrow for sin, this hatred for sin, lies in the will. And St. Alphonsus points out that what God requires is a deliberate determination of the will, that we'd rather prefer to lose all things than to offend God that we'd rather lose everything than lose the grace and friendship of God. It's in our will. It's not an emotional thing. He points out, St. Alphonsus, it would not be sufficient to repent of your sin because it has harmed your health, your property, or your reputation. This would be a natural motive. Close quote. Sorrow rooted in a purely natural motive. Loss of a job, destruction of a marriage, coming down with a disease, that kind of sorrow is not sufficient. In other words, our sorrow must have a supernatural motive. We must be sorrow for having offended God, released for having lost heaven, and merited eternal damnation in hell. He points out we have to have the sorrow for all our mortal sins, each and every one of them. I quote With regard to mortal sins, it is necessary to have true sorrow for all of them, and a sincere purpose not to commit them again. Otherwise, no sin, mortal or venial, will be pardoned. The reason for this is no mortal sin can be pardoned without the infusion of sanctifying grace into the soul. But this grace cannot exist in the soul along with any mortal sin. Therefore, no one can obtain the pardon of one mortal sin without receiving the pardon of them all. If someone's confessing only venial sins, one venial sin can be forgiven without pardon of another. To obtain forgiveness of any venial sin is enough to have true sorrow for it. Close quotes, St. Alphonsus. Okay, quick review. What have we seen? We've seen that out of the three things brought by the penitent to confession, and that's contrition, confession, and satisfaction, contrition holds the first place. We've seen that sorrow for sin is so necessary for forgiveness that without it, even God Himself cannot forgive the sinner. We've seen that a person who dies without making an examination of conscience or confessing his sins may be saved by making a sincere act of perfect contrition, if there's no time to confess his sins or no priest available to confess them. But without sorrow, it is impossible for the sinner to be saved. We've seen that the sorrow for sin, this hatred for sin, lies in the will. It means we'd prefer to lose everything rather than lose the friendship of God, rather than offend God, and lose His grace. We've seen our sorrow must have a supernatural motive, that we must be sorrow for having offended God, or having lost heaven, or for having merited damnation in hell. That a natural motive, like the loss of job, reputation, etc., is not sufficient. We've seen that we need to have this sorrow for each and every one of our mortal sins, or none of them are forgiven. And we've seen that in regards to venial sins, one venial sin can be forgiven without the pardon of others. It's enough to have true sorrow for one venial sin in order to gain forgiveness of it. Now that we've looked at the properties of sorrow, let's consider the different possible types of sorrow for sin. As we go through the possibilities, if it isn't already very obvious what the problem was with the man who had been going to confession while he was still damned, if that isn't already obvious, it will be soon. Now this is a salvation issue, so let's make absolutely sure that we each have a very clear understanding of this. Now we'll follow a commentary on St. Alphonsus that was done by a man that I consider to be the greatest moral theologian of recent times, that's the late uh, great Father Alphonsus Sutton F.I. Father St. Alphonsus explains there are, three, well, there are four possible conditions of a soul falling mortal sins. So there's four possible conditions of a soul after a mortal sin. The first possible condition is a reprobate sense. The reprobate sense occurs when someone by God's just decree has had so much of his wisdom withdrawn as a punishment for having abused it that he no longer seriously or intelligently cares about his salvation. Again, a reprobate sense occurs when someone, by God's just decree, has had so much of his wisdom withdrawn as a punishment for having abused it, that he no longer seriously or intelligently cares about his salvation. You just go down to a rough Bar on a Saturday night, not that I recommend it, and ask them where they think they're going to go when they die. Huh, I guess I'll go to hell where my friends are. Now that's a quote. I've heard that with my own ears. That's a quote. The people were serious about the answer. St. Alphonsus considers the final repentance and salvation of such souls normally quite improbable. But one should pray for them and give them a good example as there are degrees in this state, and it's not definitive. For there's life, there's hope. So that's the reprobate sense. The second possible condition of the soul after mortal sin is defective contrition. Defective contrition occurs when the sinner feels some regret for his sins, maybe he'll even cry over them, but he remains unwilling to put God first in his life. He lacks a firm purpose of amendment. For example, a man with defective contrition may very well go to confession, but he won't return ill-gotten goods. He will not start paying overdue debts, which he's able to pay. He won't stop living with a concubine or keeping company with a sinful companion. He won't abandon a drug or alcohol habit. He won't stop using contraception. He won't put a filter on his computer or smartphone. He won't stop watching evil shows on TV. He won't repent of a sterilization. He won't forgive an enemy, etc., etc., etc. Here's the point. As long as the man is in the state of defective contrition, even if he were to go to confession, since a man with defective contrition is not serious about avoiding sin on the near occasion of sin, his act of contrition would be a lie. Be a lie. And God sees that, even if the priest doesn't. And even if the priest were to pronounce the words of absolution over such a man, one time, ten times, a hundred times, each and every time that absolution would just ricochet off. Why? Because it's impossible to forgive sins without true contrition. If a man with defective contrition tries to confess, and even if the priest says the words of absolution, no sins are forgiven. Not one. The confession is bad, The absolution is invalid. Not only will the man remain in his sins, he's now added the sin of a sacrilegious confession to his tally. The basic problem here is the man wants to get right with the Lord, but still keep partying with the devil. We have it on the highest authority that no man can serve two masters. Sinners with defective contrition can often be helped by a good confessor, devout friend, to take the necessary steps which will make it possible for him to validly receive absolution. So that's defective contrition. Now obviously it's completely impossible for sinners with the reprobate sense or with defective contrition to make good confessions and be reconciled with God. But indeed we all can. We all should do something here for these poor creatures who are hurtling towards damnation. What can we do? Sister Lucia answers, quote, Our lady recommended to me prayer and sacrifice for sinners, saying that a great number are damned because they have no one to pray and sacrifice for them. Close quote. We have the example of children at Fatima. Don't let that be wasted on us. Now, God's grace is amazing. I'm personally uh, very close to several, uh, I guess you'd have to say, formally unbelievable reprobates who did convert and actually become holy. Someone had to pay that price. The third possible condition of a soul after mortal sin is imperfect contrition. That's sometimes called attrition. Nutrition is called imperfect when the sinner indeed at least has the first beginning, the first spark of love of God, which St. Alphonsus says is present if the sinner has the firm purpose of amendment. But if he's moving, he's, in this case... He's moved by less perfect motive than God's lovableness, such as from considering the ugliness of sin or the fact of having deserved hell or the loss of heaven and punishment. If someone guilty of a mortal sin has imperfect contrition, he can't be pardoned until the moment he makes a good confession. So that's imperfect contrition. The fourth possible condition of a soul after mortal sin is perfect contrition. Contrition is called perfect when the sinner is moved principally by considering God's goodness and lovableness, although he may still be moved strongly but secondarily by fear of hell and God's justice. Perfect contrition is regret for sin on account of the wrong done for God. So love is the principal motive here, which is why it wins God's pardon as soon as the soul arrives at it. Assuming that a sinner includes in it the will to fulfill all that God asks for, and to make reconciliation with him, And for all properly categorized Catholics, we realize this would include the intention to making a good confession at the first opportunity. So properly categorized Catholics realize that perfect contrition includes the intention to make a good confession. So that's perfect contrition. Okay, what have we seen? We've seen that after committing a mortal sin, there are four possible states of the soul. One, the reprobate sense, when the sinner, as a punishment for sin, no longer seriously and intelligently cares about his salvation. Two, defective contrition, the sinner has some regret for sin, but lacks a firm purpose of amendment. Three, imperfect contrition, when the sinner does have a perf- perfect, firm purpose of amendment, but is moved by less pure, perfect motives than love of God, for example, the fear of hell. And for perfect contrition, the sinner is moved by regret for sin on account of the wrongdoer to God, who is infinitely good and worthy of all love. Okay. So we started by trying to get a clear understanding why the man who had been regularly going to confession was damned, along with his confessor. It should be obvious to everyone by now. He was damned because of his guilt of mortal sin, but didn't have true sorrow for his sins. He kept going to confession. That means he wasn't a complete reprobate. But he's unwilling to put God first in his life. He wouldn't set aside the sinful companion. In other words, he lacked a firm purpose of amendment. He wouldn't stop keeping company with his companion. And so he had defective contrition. Every time he went to confession, even if he very carefully confessed each and every one of his mortal sins and carefully did the penance, it still did him absolutely no good. Why? Because every time he made his act of contrition, it was a lie. He was lying to God. He wasn't serious about avoiding that woman. And because of that, every time the confessor pr- pronounced the words of absolution, nothing happened. It just ricocheted off. The confessions were bad. and absolution was invalid. Which means that not only did he remain in his sin, every time he made those confessions, he came out of the confessional in a worse state than he went in. Since each time he also committed another sin, the sin of a sacrilegious confession. So now we can see why that poor man was damned. What about the priest? Why was the priest damned? Remember we consider the situation. When the priest is saying Mass in the offertory when he takes out the pall, instead of a weed host Line there, there's a vanilla wafer, saying a patent, which obviously isn't proper matter. And we know that absolutely nothing would happen to that vanilla wafer if the priest were so wicked as to pronounce the words of institution, the form over it. Why? Because it isn't proper matter. But if this priest actually did try to concentrate that vanilla wafer, nothing would happen to the vanilla wafer, but he would commit the terrible sin of sacrilege. So why was this priest damned? The priest was damned because, in the first place, he didn't require the man to separate from his sinful companion. Even though it would have been obvious from the man's confession that the penitent was obviously not making any effort to reform his life and avoid the near occasion of sin. So in the first place, the priest did nothing to stop that man from falling into hell, which demonstrates on the part of the priest a complete lack of charity for the sinner. In fact, it, it demonstrates a true hatred for him. And on top of that, to make matters even worse, is in spite of the fact that it's obvious that the penitent is lacking in the most important part of matter, which is contrition, for his sins, that's the most important part of the matter of sacrament, the priest would invalidly pronounce these words of absolution anyway, which resulted in two more sins. One on the part of the penitent, which is a sacrilegious confession, one on the part of the priest, the sin of sacrilege, showing a contempt for God and for the holiness of his sacraments as he invalidly pronounces his sacramental form over improper matter. Now compare the way this poor damn priest handed this poor damn penitent to the fatherly advice Pope Leo XII gave to confessors who were confronted with these kind of situations. I quote from Leo XII, Who are the penitents that are to be judged indisposed for absolution? They are who are prudently judged to lack that attitude of sorrow and repentance, whereby souls are ready to obtain divine grace in the sacrament. But see to it that the needful things have been done for these souls by the priest and that in this process they are not severely treated beyond what is due. See to it that every diligent effort is made to arouse in them a hatred for sin, that one accompanies this with very earnest prayers poured forth to God. The minister should be aware of nothing more than he should be aware of this, namely that through his fault one goes away disbelieving God's goodness and antagonistic towards the sacrament of reconciliation. Therefore, if there is a just reason to delay absolution, with the kindest words he is capable of, the minister should speak persuasively to the penitent to show them that the delay is necessary, that his duty, his office, and even their salvation definitively demanded. Also he should induce them in the kindest way to return promptly, so when they have faithfully performed the things which have properly prescribed, they may be loosed from the bonds of sin and restored anew by the sweetness of divine grace. Close quote The Vicar of Christ. If there's a just reason to delay absolution with the kindest words he's capable of, the minister should speak persuasively to the penitents to show them that this delay is necessary, that his duty and office and even their salvation definitively demand it. He should also induce them in the kindest way to return promptly, so when they have faithfully performed the things which have been properly prescribed, they be loosed from the bond of sin, be restored anew by the sweetness of divine grace. What are we saying here? We're saying that if a priest follows these principles and delays a penitence to absolution until he has a proper contrition, until he removes himself from the near occasion of sin, he's not our enemy. He loves us enough to keep us from hurtling over into the abyss. Now, I fully recognize this is not standard confessional procedure in our day and age. If we confessors were held up to the kind of professional standards that physicians are held up to, there probably wouldn't be many of us left to practice. In fact, almost none. There's a lot of spiritual malpractice these days, a lot of it. Okay. So it's easy to see why the confessor was also damned and why he was beneath the adulterer. He was responsible for helping that man get to heaven and avoid hell. And not only did not do that, in a very real sense, he's the accomplice the of the man in procuring his damnation. In a certain sense, he's just shoving a much deeper uh, place into hell by allowing him to make all those sacrilegious confessions. But in these type of situations, it's also, and unfortunately not uncommon, to find confessors who not only invalid and sacrilegiously attempt to absolve these kind of sinners without insisting they remove the near occasion of sin, the sinful commandment, the unfiltered internet, the contraceptives, but they're also guilty of another offense, an offense so grave that not only is it serious sin, a serious mortal sin, but it's also listed in the church's legal system as a crime. The crime is called solicitation. Solicitation, in this context, solicitation has a broader meaning than when we use it in common everyday speech. It'll be obvious why solicitation is a sin as soon as we explain it, but to come to a little deeper appreciation of it as a crime, we'll take various excerpts from the commentaries on canon law found in a brilliant article written by Dr. Edward Peters. He's a well-known canon lawyer. And by quoting from this article, I'm no way suggesting I agree with his writings across the board, especially the stuff he written on annulments. But this is a brilliant article. Okay, canon 1387 of the 1983 code of canon law. And this is nothing new, but this is in the new code, too. But this has been around. Uh, It's a traditional thing. Canon 1387 explains the canonical crime of solicitation. I quote, A priest who in confession or on the occasion or under the pretext of confession solicits a penitent to sin against the Sixth Commandment is to be punished according to the gravity of the offense: suspension, prohibitions, and deprivations, In the more serious cases is to be dismissed from the clerical state. Close quote. In other words, the crime of solicitation consists in a confessor giving to penitent, immoral advice concerning any sixth commandment matters, to be acted on in any context." I quote. "Solicitation exists if the con- confessor sinfully suggests that the person commit impure acts of any type. for example, counsels the use of contraceptives." Close quote. "Indeed, the delict is committed even by wrong advice, wrong advice, as to the sinfulness of evil thoughts. Close quote. And that, qu- that last quote shows this pertains also to the ninth commandment. Solicitation, in other words, isn't limited simply to the confessor attempting to solicit, some, solicit someone to sin in the common understanding of the word. It also includes evil advice regarding such matters as contraception, sterilization, fornication, adultery, perverse acts of any type, viewing impure images, entertaining impure thoughts, and so forth. And obviously, in giving this type of wicked advice, actually diabolical advice, would completely pervert and corrupt the whole role of the confessor in the very context of the sacrament of confession. In terms of the crime, then, a confessor is giving objectively immoral advice in these matters to a penitent to be acted on either by the penitent alone, by the penitent with a third party, is a crime under the 1983 code, to be tried at the local level, close quote, but solicitation of the common understanding of the term is a crime so serious it can and must be judged only in Rome itself. So what have we seen in this section of the sermon? We've seen that solicitation is a crime which consists in a confessor giving to a penitent immoral advice concerning any Sixth Commandment matters to be acted upon in any context. We've seen it isn't limited simply to the confessor tempting someone to solicit to sin in the common understanding of the word. It includes evil advice regarding such matters as contraception, fornication, adultery, sterilization, uh, uh, perverse acts of any type, viewing impure images, entertaining impure thoughts, and so forth. We've seen in the case of confessor giving objectively immoral advice in these matters to penitent, to be acted on either by the penitent alone or with a third party. It's a crime to be tried at the local level, but in the common understanding it's a crime so serious it has to be tried wrong. That's enough for today. As we know, last week we're having this Henry VIII moment in the church. To make sense out of what's going on between the Pope and the four cardinals and why it really matters, we've been reviewing some fundamental points of the faith before we tie it together. So last week we reviewed some of the basic teachings concerning marriage. Today we took a closer look at some of the basic teachings concerning sacrament of penance as regards both the penitent and the priesthood and confessions. Let's close. We each need to take to heart the psalm warning found in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Quote, The faithful, therefore, will see the great care that each one should take in selecting as a confessor a priest who is recommended by integrity of life, by learning and prudence, who is deeply impressed with the awful weight and responsibility of the station which he holds, who understands well the punishment due to every sin, and can also discern who are to be loosed and who are to be bound. Close quote, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. The faithful we will see the great care that each one should take and select him as a confessor, a priest who is recommended by integrity of life, by learning and prudence, who is deeply impressed with the awful weight and responsibility of the station which he holds, who understands well the punishment due to every sin and can discern who are to be loosed and who are to be bound.